You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. point of the video is that you cannot believe everything you see on television. No matter who's saying it. Because sometimes you'll get erroneous information from people that maybe have uh, good intentions. <laughs> but if you think about what they're saying, it doesn't line up with what the Bible says. Such as one of the messages that you were given right then a moment ago that you ought to have you know, total victory over depression, total victory over your finances, da 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 kind of this, the whole health and wealth type mentality. That wasn't even the experience of Jesus who was God in the flesh. Or the experience of the Apostle Paul. Or many others. So we are doing a series that's entitled, What Should We Believe? And we're talking about doctrine. Taking nine weeks to talk about doctrine. Now, Probably the reason for that can be found in this next verse, two verses, as to why we would feel the need to take nine weeks and just focus kind of exclusively on some doctrinal stuff at the risk of making you think you're in Bible college or seminary or something, okay? The Bible says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having each and ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I'm afraid that we're in days like that. To where instead of people wanting what the Bible really has to say, they want to be told what they want the Bible to say. So they can... Maybe justify the way they want to live or choices that they want to make in, in their lives. Now, I said this last week, and I'll probably say it every week. If you came today or if you're coming to this series with the anticipation that I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about God, as I said last week, uh, you're crazy. And if I were to think I could do that, I'm crazy. Okay? Because neither I nor anyone else has it all fully figured out to the 10th degree. And as I told you last week, and I'll probably say this every Sunday in this series, I'm really comfortable with that because I would rather have a God to worship that is so huge and and so big that I can't just fit Him into some little theological box of my own making. Now, if it's a box that He makes based upon what he says in his word, based upon his doctrine, that's one thing if it's a box that he makes. But I'm glad God is beyond me just being able to fit him into some kind of nice compact box. So you're not going to learn everything there is to know about God by coming to this series, okay? <laughs> You'd hear me preach for the rest of my life. We can stay here from now till the time I die, and I can't tell you everything there is to know about God because I don't know everything there is to know about God. But I will attempt to show you what the Bible says about some of these main doctrines that we're looking at. <clears throat> Last week, we talked about the Trinity, uh, and we were just looking at who God is, and God reveals Himself as a Trinity. Today, we're really going to look at the Bible. We're asking this question, why the Bible? And it's really, if you want the doctrinal endeavor, we're talking about God's revelation. 
God revealing himself to men through his word. Uh, a couple of kind of launching pads that we're going to use as we uh, jump off into this message today are found in, in these two sets of scriptures. First of all, in 1 Corinthians, the Bible says this, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now, in essence, just to kind of give you a quick explanation of that passage of Scripture, we don't understand the Bible necessarily by using worldly terms or worldly thoughts, but instead, as believers, we've been given the Holy Spirit of God who God used to move upon the hearts of men to write the Bible to begin with. And we're given that spirit so we can understand the things freely given us by God. God freely chose to reveal himself things about, to to reveal to us things about himself. To to reveal himself to us in, in ways that for us to fully understand it, we need the Holy Spirit to help us do that. Another passage is this, our our second launching pad is this. All Scripture, by the way, I did look that up, and the word does mean all, okay? All Scripture is breathed out. Some translations say inspired or use other language. But here it says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, some words that are used there, I want us to kind of take a moment and look at this in a little bit more depth before we go on. When it, when it says there that, that God breathed out or God inspired, when you look at what the word means in the Greek, it literally means divinely breathed in. God, God himself breathed into Men, His Word. And by the way, it's not so much the men being inspired, it's God's Word. That's the part that was inspired. He breathed it in to them. And because it is from God, it was divinely breathed, it's profitable. In other words, it's, it's helpful for us. It's beneficial. It's advantageous for us. Now, there are a lot of words, that, other words that were used there about, you know, good for righteousness and, and for teaching and doctrine. But I, I mainly want to boil those into this word because it said it, it makes us competent, which means to make us complete, to equip us. And that means to finish out or to equip fully. Let, let me illustrate that a, a minute. As Christians, we need to be fully equipped. Maybe you think of it as a, as a soldier with his gun loaded. What, how ridiculous would it be for us to enlist somebody into the army, train them about how to be involved in warfare, and then the day we send them out on the battlefield, we don't give them a gun, or we give them a gun with no bullets. Maybe it's like Barney Fife or something, okay? Well, what good is it to train somebody fully in law enforcement and then when you send them out to do their job, they're not fully equipped to do their job? Well, you see, here's what I'm saying by that. You and I, as Christ followers, if you've received Christ as your Savior and you are trying to follow Christ, to be a disciple of Christ, our goal is for us to be fully equipped so as we go out to serve Christ, 
we are equipped to do it. We've, we've got our bullets with us, more or less. You understand what I'm saying? We, we need God to, to equip us, to teach us, so we can go out and, and serve Him as, as we should. Now, to a certain degree, we're kind of talking about information. It's really a lot more than information, and, and I'll say something about that in a moment. But just think about our society today. We live in an information thirsty, hungry society, don't we? I mean, you've got, you know, magazines and newspapers and television programs and iPods and iPads and cell phones and text and everything else under the sun. We, we've got this just insatiable desire to get information in. And part of the reason for that is that's how God wired us. God, God put a desire in our hearts to know things. But, but here's the deal with that. The way that desire that you have in your heart and in your life to know things is really fulfilled is to know God. And to have a relationship with Him. You could be able to quote frontwards and backwards every encyclopedia that's ever been written, and it would still fall short of meeting that inbuilt need that you have in your heart to know because that inbuilt need is there to drive you to have a relationship with God for you to know God. That's why we need to know doctrine and understand that God wants to reveal Himself to us. You see, what we're talking about is divine revelation. In other words, something God has said to us. And the Bible begins right in the very front of the Bible, letting us know that God wants to speak because at least no less than ten times in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, the Bible tells us this, God said, God said, God said. It lets us know up front He wants to communicate to us. He wants to reveal Himself to us. All through Genesis, you have a picture of God, God saying things. But in the midst of our culture, in the midst of all that noise that I was talking about a minute ago from all this information, maybe here's a good question for us. How do we hear God? Well, we're going to talk about some ways in just a moment. I'm going to submit to you primarily up front. You hear God by reading the Bible. That's primary. You hear God by reading the Bible. His Word, because it's in His Word that He is divinely revealing Himself to us. We've got two choices. We can have speculation. And speculation is simply this. That's men guessing things about God. Men or religions or whatever guessing things about God. That's speculation. Or we can have revelation, and that's God revealing himself to us. Now, given those two choices, if I'm going to go with the guesses of men or what God reveals about himself to us, I'm going to revelation. How about you? What, what God tells us, not just what somebody speculates about God and who God is. We're going to just ask some questions, and maybe six main questions this morning, be some you know, other questions probably along the way, like some sub-questions. But we're going to approach this today about God's revelation. What does that mean? Why do we have the Bible? Why is it important to read the Bible? All those things. We're, we're just going to ask some questions. Here's question number one. How does God reveal himself? If God is in the business of revealing himself, if God had the desire to reveal himself to man... How does he do it? 
Well, there, there are two primary ways. One is called general revelation. And, and in general revelation, God does reveal himself to us through things like conscience and, and creation and, and something called common grace that I'll explain in, in just a moment. Look at these verses and see how God reveals himself in, in general ways. In Romans 1, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. In other words, God through creation in the things that he has made, if people would be honest about the complexity of creation and the wonder and the majesty of creation, you have to come up with the idea that there's a creator and we didn't just crawl out of some warm pond one day. We'll talk about creation next Sunday. So they are without excuse. In other words, God clearly reveals himself to people that don't even have a Bible, cultures that don't even have a Bible, to where they can look around at creation and there's this conscious thing inside of them that lets them know there must be a God. To the degree that they're without excuse if they never even have a Bible in their hand, God reveals himself clearly enough through, through creation and through the conscience that we know there's a God. And that makes us accountable to him, to that truth that people can know. So they were that excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Next slide. In Romans 1.18, there's a little bit more information about conscience. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Who by, their unrighteous, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, God is shouting, I'm there. God is saying, I'm there. I'm giving you evidence that I am there. And yet people want to suppress the truth instead of going on with what God has given them in their conscience. Next slide. Creation. Psalm 8, 3 through 4 says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist is writing, God, you did this in your fingers there by the fact that you made this wonderful creation. We have evidence that you exist. Next slide, please. The Bible says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Isaiah it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When you look honestly at creation, you have to come away with this impression. There is a great, wonderful, beautiful God that made all of this stuff. It did not just come about. God is the one that created these things in the heavens, in creation. 
When, when you look at the sun, when you look at the stars, when you just look out at the sky, when you see birds fly by or bugs crawl by or whatever it might be, all of those things are giving you evidence that there's a wonderful creator. Especially when you look at the human body, when doctors study the complexity of the human body or any mother that's given birth or any father that's held a baby or grandfather that's held a baby. In that, you see the wonder of God because God was active and he's involved in this thing called creation. I mean, think about it right now. You can look at the screen and you can look down and you can read the words in your Bible. Just think about the complexity and the wonder of the human eye. God made that and he made it for a reason. Our bodies shout that there is a creator and because of that we ought to worship him. You see, that's really at the root of people wanting to believe there's not really a creator. We just evolved because if we can do away with a creator, we can do away with our responsibility to a creator. Some more of that will come in next week. Common grace is this. God reveals himself in general ways through conscience, through creation, but also we're told in the Bible by something I'll call common grace. Common grace just means there are things that, that everybody enjoys, whether you know God or not, you know, whether you've received Christ as your Savior or not, whether you give a hoot whether there's a God or not. There are things that people experience that should drive them to the reality that there is a God. Matthew 5, 45 is one of the verses that teaches this. And it says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. People that love Jesus can enjoy the food that comes in because of the sun and the rain. People that don't know Jesus can enjoy the food. It's just a common way that God is saying, I am here. I'm the one that's making this rain. I'm the one that's making the sun, the wind that you feel against your face. All things in common that we just as human beings can experience like that. That's a common grace of God graciously. He didn't have to, but he graciously provides these things for us. And those are things that reveal to us that indeed there is a God. And then special revelation. Here's the second main way God reveals himself. Special revelation is God choosing to reveal himself in clear ways through the Bible. Through the Bible. God sending us a letter, multiple letters. God giving us multiple books is put in this wonderful big book called the Bible to reveal himself to mankind. Jesus looked at the religious crowd one day and he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. God in a special way reveals himself to us, reveals Jesus to us. By the way, from cover to cover, and I'll say more about that in a few moments also later in the message, but God is in the business of revealing himself to mankind. God clearly, through revelation, through His Word, wants to reveal Himself to us in a special way through the written Word of God. Now think about it. God can reveal Himself to us in our conscience. In other words, just a general revelation. There's something in us that lets us know there's a God. In creation, we can look at creation and come to the conclusion there must be a Creator God. 
the common graces that are out there, the things that we enjoy in this world, testify to us that there's a God who cares for us and loves us. But I submit to you, you will not find John 3.16 out in nature. You'll not find the truth that Jesus Christ loved you enough to die on the cross for your sins by going down to the beach, unless somebody walks by and shows you the Bible or tells you the message of Jesus. You'll not see it just in creation. You'll not get it just out of your conscience. You will not receive that just from the common graces where God lets us know by all the, the wonderful sunshine and the water and the food and things like that that we all can enjoy. Where you find out about Jesus is here. God reveals himself to us in the written word of God. And that's why it is so strategic and so important that we understand this is the word of God, that it is the perfect word of God because he's perfect and realize that this is what tells us about Jesus. Special revelation to us. God revealing himself through the Bible. God allowing us to understand that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves by the Bible. God pointing us to his forgiveness and his provision for forgiveness and grace and mercy, which is Jesus Christ crucified by the Bible. That is God's special revelation to us. God cared enough to give us this book so we can understand about Jesus. And in, a, and in a real clear way, it's not just God revealing himself through the written word, but God revealed himself through the living word, the incarnate son of God. If you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. So that was our first question. Second question is, is this. What's meant by the Scriptures? I mean, you've heard people probably say it all your life, the Scriptures, the Scriptures. What is really meant by that? Because some people define it different ways. Some people define the Scriptures by just one, you know, one version, one translation, whatever the case might be. What is really the Scriptures? Well, the definition of it is simply this. Scripture is God speaking to us in human words. That's just a simple definition of what's meant by the Scriptures. It is God speaking to us in human words to where we can clearly hear and understand the message that God wants to give us. It was primarily written in Hebrew, Greek, and some Aramaic. That's how God spoke to us in those languages originally as He gave us His Word. Some facts about the Bible are these. It was written over a period of some 1,500 years. Now think about it, written over 1,500 years, and yet it has one theme. More than 40 writers were used over 1,500 years on three different continents. And yet there's one common theme and purpose Throughout the whole Bible. Can, can I ask you a question? How did men conspire over 1,500 years to have a unified message from the beginning until the end of the Bible? It's made up of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It's really the, it's like a library of books in one book. It is what it's like when you think about the Bible. It's the best-selling book of all time. Someone says, oh, there's a best-seller out there. I've got one for you that's been a best-seller for a long, long time. It's the Word of God. 
The Bible contains these types of writings, narrative or history, wisdom books, poetry, prophecy, letters or epistles. And, and God is using all of this to reveal himself to us. Some of you have heard the word canon before. Here's what canon means. Next slide, please. Canon, the word in the Greek, means rule or a measuring rod. So the canon of scriptures is really the, the rule book or the measuring rod by which all truth is analyzed. Because this Bible is true. Now, someone's going to argue sometimes and say, well, you know, we know things today and we, and, and we don't, you know, we just don't believe it anymore because we know scientific things today. Like, we know, the, we know that, the, that the sun doesn't go down, for instance. People will point at things like that. That's true, but, you know, we still use that phraseology, don't we? The sun went down the sun came up. See, the Bible speaks in terms like that. The Bible is not a scientific book, and you may have heard about this before, but anytime it speaks to science, it is always right. And that's been proven time and time and time again. The, the canon of Scripture are the 66 books that God graciously preserved for us to be His Word. Now, someone's probably already thinking, well, what about the other uh, books? What about the other Gospels, the Lost Gospels, or the Gnostic Gospels, or the Apocrypha? And, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. See, some people get the idea that, that the Bible, the, the ones that are included in what's called the canon, or the measuring rod of Scripture, they get the idea that it's there just because a group of men got in a room, you know, smoke full room kind of with cigars. That's the idea. You're almost being given. They sit around and kind of haphazardly decide, we'll take this one, we'll take that one, we'll take this one. That's not what happened. Look at this quote by F.F. F. Bruce. One thing that must be emphatically stated, the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired. They had been thought of as divinely inspired, recognized as words from God for years before the canon was ever put together. J.A. Packer says this about it. The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by His word of creation. And similarly, He gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. We didn't sit around as, as men, as people, and decide, all right, this is the Bible. No more than Isaac Newton decided one day that he created gravity. Gravity was there because it was made by God. The Bible is here because it was made by God. It's God revealing himself to us. Jesus and his disciples quoted from the Old Testament. And Jesus and the disciples called them scriptures. In Matthew 21, 42, the Bible says this, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? He's quoted from the Old Testament. It was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Jesus called it the Scriptures. Paul himself 
it seems to me, thought that he was writing the Scriptures because in 1 Corinthians 7, in verse 40, and I think I too have the Spirit of God. He just had said stuff that Jesus had definitely said, and now Paul is writing, and he says, I think I too have the Spirit of God. In other words, what I'm saying is divinely inspired. Peter thought what Paul was writing was the Scriptures because Peter says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Notice this, as they do the, what? Other scriptures. Peter's saying what Paul is writing is Scripture. He recognized it, and he was thinking of it as Scripture. Now, let me get to the question that some of you thought of when I said the canon. Why were some books included, and why were some books not included? Okay? Because you have people out there. The, the Da Vinci Code, for instance, was uh, written, and uh, try, it was written from uh, things that, that he referred to as the lost gospels, as though the church had lost them and didn't know where they were, and now all of a sudden we found them and they ought to be in canon. They were never lost. <laughs> I don't know why they call them the lost gospels. They were never lost. They were not included in canon for some very important reasons. Some of them have good content. So some of them even quote things that Jesus said that we find in the other four Gospels, but they're not the Word of God. It'd be similar to you and I writing a book about God today, to be honest with you. And, and here's some reasons for that. First of all, all the Gospels that are included in the canon were written in the first century. People who were eyewitnesses of Jesus People who saw it and gave an eyewitness testimony. The, quote, lost gospels or the apocryphal books or the uh, Gnostic, you know, gospels, some people call uh, some of those, were all written later than 100 years after Jesus had ascended and gone back to heaven. That's one reason they weren't included. They were not eyewitness accounts. There were not people who were living close to the time that Jesus was born. Some claim this. Some claim that Jesus, this is one of the uh, uh, accusations or one of the thoughts that the Da Vinci Code put out, that Jesus uh, didn't really go back to heaven, that Jesus literally stayed here, that he, that he married Mary Magdalene, and they had offspring, and because of that, there's like a special race of people that's still running around in the world today. Well, they, they base this on a section that was supposed to be out of the Gospel of Philip that was written over a hundred years later after Jesus had ascended. And here's what they used to base it upon. In the companion of, do you see the brackets? The bracket is a place where the parchment is broken and it's missing. You, the, the words aren't there. And, and the companion of, blank, uh, Mary Magdalene, and then a blank section, or more than the disciples, once again, a blank section because the parchment's destroyed and gone. You, you know, it's just deteriorated. You can't read it. Kiss on her, but we don't know who that might be kissing on her. And I read my Bible, you know, see men kissing men. It's part of the Bible culture in that day and time. 
Walk up and kiss somebody, greet somebody with a kiss. Wasn't what we think about it today. But then another blank. The rest said, and then there's another blank because there's a part that's lost. And they said to him, why do you love her more than all of us? Now that's what they used to base the fact that they said that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. I submit to you, that's kind of shaky ground for evidence. (laughs) Because look how much is missing. Another reason is this, the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is one of the Gnostic Gospels. In other words, it was written from the standpoint that all matter is evil. And in the Gospel of Thomas, uh, when you read it, there's a, a like a kind of a second-rate God uh, that's really an angelic figure who rebelliously created the physical world. And that's why it takes on a Gnostic theology, because they believe that all, all matter is evil. That's why they say Jesus could not have come in human form, because human form would have been evil. Well, look something that's quoted. Look at something here that's quoted from the, from the Gospel of Thomas. You ladies will love this one. <laughs> Simon Peter said to him, talking to Jesus, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, does that give you some idea why that is not included in the canon of Scripture? How would you ladies feel today if that were included in the canon of Scripture that you evidently are being told by Peter and by Jesus that women are no good and the only way you can get to heaven is if you become a male? Maybe that explains some of the weird surgeries people go through in this day and time, huh? So I'm just giving you some examples of why These were not included in the canon because it does not bear the, you know, being worthy of being God's word and being true because that flies in face of what the rest of the word of God has to say. Proverbs tells us this. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You know what happened to these other, quote, gospels that were written years and years and years after Jesus had already ascended to heaven and they were not written from eyewitness accounts? They were just kind of trying to say what they wanted to say, and guess what? They were proved to be liars because what they wrote are not true. It does not go along with, with the rest of what the Word of God has to say. So having said that, here's another question people ask. Can we write Scripture today? And the answer is no. Well, why not, somebody might say. I mean, you know, Peter got to write Scripture, and Paul had the chance to write Scripture. Why don't I get to write Scripture? Well, here's some reasons why. The Old Testament was finished with a waiting promise for the Messiah to be born. Guess what? That's already happened now. So you can't write the Old Testament because it's the, the promise of the Old Testament has already been fulfilled. It, it ended with us being given the promise of Jesus coming, and then after about 450 years of silence, then all of a sudden burst on the screen, here, you know, here comes John the Baptist as a forerunner of Jesus, then here comes Jesus. So that part's already been fulfilled. 
Another reason we cannot write or should not try and think we can write Scripture is that the New Testament ends with a warning, pretty significant warning. Because the New Testament tells us this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. So we're given a warning at the very end of the Bible, letting us know that you can't write Scripture. Another reason why there's no need to write Scripture today is that Jesus Christ is God's final word to us. Jesus, even though you know the New Testament was written, I know he had ascended and more. The New Testament was written after that. Guess who it's about? It's about Jesus. Jesus Christ is God's final word to us. Hebrews tells us this. Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We can't write Scripture because the Old Testament's already been complete. Jesus has come on the scene. We're warned that we're not to try and add or take away from the book. Jesus is God's final word to us. And then Revelation 22, verse 20, it says this. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You know why we can't write any Scripture, why we shouldn't be thinking we can write Scripture? There's not anything else to be said. There's not anything else to be said. We're, we're sitting back waiting for Jesus to come back. It's closed off. It said, even so, come, Lord Jesus, amen. The Bible's finished. We're sitting waiting for the return of Christ. That's why no one can write Scriptures today. All right, if somebody can't do it, who wrote the Bible then? Let's talk about that because a lot of people debate that and wonder who it is that really wrote the Bible. Well, the person that wrote the Bible, guess what, is God. God's the author. We already saw this scripture earlier. All scripture is what? It's breathed out by God. God breathed it out and into the hearts of men. All scripture comes from God. That means that the Bible or scripture is authoritative, and I underline the word author for a reason. The reason Scripture is authoritative is that God is the author of it. God is the one that wrote the Bible. That's why we ought to bring our lives underneath what the Bible has to say. Instead of trying to debate it or refuse it or reject it, we ought to accept the Bible as being God's authoritative word to us. We ought to bring our lives under the authority of God's Word. He breathed it out. It came from him. The Bible is from God. That's the author. What about the writers then? The writers were God-inspired. God breathed upon men. John 14, 25 through 26. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus even told his disciples that. I'm getting ready to go away. God's going to send the Comforter. The Comforter will lead you in all truth about me. He's going to remind you the stuff that I said so you can write it down. And the Gospels can be produced. And that's going to be now part of the Word of God. God used men. 
in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to write the Scriptures. God used men to literally write down the very words that He wanted. It wasn't a co-authoring deal. It wasn't God just saying, well, kind of here's a thought and you put it down however you want it. What I believe, what I look toward the Scriptures is what is called this. Next slide. The verbal plenary inspiration. That simply means this. Verbal means the very words. God moved upon the hearts of the men that wrote the Scripture, and they wrote the very words that God wanted used. Now, we don't have time to go into all the history of this, but if you'll study it out sometime, I believe God allowed the political control to happen in the Middle East simply so the New Testament could be written in the Greek language. Because the Greek language is more descriptive than, than our language, than English, or even the Hebrew language. And I think God superintended all of that so the New Testament, New Testament actually be written in the Greek. Plenary means to believe every word. That, that we are to accept every word as true. It is from God. That's why we must accept it as being true from God's Word. If you want some extra evidence of divine uh, inspiration, think about some of the things we've already talked about. Uh, he used uh, 15, over 1,500 years. He used over 40 people. Listen to the, the varied backgrounds of these people. He used fishermen, poets, statesmen, a doctor, scholars, prophets, a tax collector, kings, peasants, philosophers, etc. Over 1,500 years, he used people of that varied background. And it still has one theme. How can it do that? Because God is the one who wrote the Scriptures. Because God is the one that gave us His Word. And we need to accept it as being God's Word. Do you know Thomas Jefferson? Have you ever heard this at Thomas Jefferson one time in the White House? He was sitting in the White House and he was reading the Bible and he decided there were sections he didn't like. And he sat there brazenly and took a razor and cut out the sections of Scripture that he didn't like. We don't have that authority. That was Thomas Jefferson trying to make himself the final authority over God's Word. That's the same thing that liberal theologians do when they try and reject certain parts of the Bible and try and challenge whether or not the Bible is really true and maybe just simply ignore or reject sections of the Bible. Anytime you do that, if you or I one were to do that, that is us putting our authority over who God is because God is the one that wrote the Bible. Who am I? Who are you to decide we'll take this section out? Second Peter says this. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God moved upon the hearts of men who wrote 
His Word. It's not a group of fairy tales. It is God moving upon the hearts of men. Illustrate it like this. They were carried along by His Holy Spirit. It's like a sailboat with the sails up, and the wind catches the sails of the sailboat and pushes it in the direction that the wind wants it to go. God took these men, and as though they were His sailboat, and He filled them up with His breath, His wind, His Word, and He guided them and superintended over them to write down exactly what he wanted to be written down in the Bible. That's what I believe. If you don't believe it, you can be wrong. Okay? You want some more evidence of the inspiration of Scripture? How could men with accuracy have prophesied years in advance the virgin birth? How can men with accuracy have prophesied and told about the crucifixion of Jesus hundreds of years before the Roman Empire ever came up with crucifixion as a system for execution? God told them what to write. It is the only explanation for that being true. Our fourth question is this. Can you and I trust our Bibles? Can I trust that my Bible is God's Word? Can you trust that the Bible is God's Word? And, of course, the answer to that one is yes. But in order for us to answer that in a more clear way, let's ask a couple of other questions. One, does the Bible contain errors or contradictions? Because there are people who will try and say, oh, this, you know, look, it, it contradicts itself. It's wrong here. You need to understand a little bit of things about the Bible also. Sometimes God, when it was talking about numbers, he was speaking in whole numbers or terms. So, you know, he wasn't necessarily uh, interested. The message is not you need to know exactly how many men went to battle that day. The message is you need to understand that the God of all the universe went with them. You need to understand what the part of the Bible is, what the message is that God's given. If God wanted all the numbers to match up exactly, completely, but sometimes he just spoke in whole numbers. But it really boils down to this. J.A. Packer talks about something called advanced commitment to Scripture being true. He calls it an advanced commitment. In other words, to begin with up front, as you and I approach the Word of God, we decide in advance as we approach the Word of God that all Scripture upon being inspected as to what it actually teaches and what was actually said, will be correct. Why should we do that? Why should you and I be willing to approach the Word of God with an advanced predisposition that this is right? Here's why. The truthfulness of Scripture is absolutely tied to the character of God. If you start to destroy this, you start to rip apart the character of God. God can't lie. If God could lie, he couldn't be God. So since God can't lie, and since God is all-knowing, the Bible teaches us he's all-knowing, and God is all-powerful, that means he has the ability. Listen, if he can say, let there be light, and there's light, if God can speak creation into being and it would be here, God can superintend on the hearts of men to write down the exact words that he wanted to be written. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. So we need to come to Scripture with a realization because of who God is and because of the character of God. The Bible must be true. If we don't do that, we are disbelieving the very character of God to begin with. 
You also, the, the Bible, the, the word used for that is inerrancy. You've heard people say that before, theological term inerrancy. It means the Bible's true. It's a doctrinal word that just represents everything that I just said because God's the author of Scripture and He promises to preserve His word all generations, then His word is perfect. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 28 says, O Lord God, You are God and Your words are true. Can I give you a warning with that? Here's the warning. Just because this is true, does not mean that everybody's interpretation of this will be perfect. This is perfect. I'm not and you're not. The preachers on TV, they're not perfect. <laughs> so you need to understand and be aware of that. That's why you need to study the Bible yourself. Because you need to be able to distinguish when someone is rightly dividing the Bible. If they're really telling you what the Bible has to say. Because the people that interpret the Scriptures, they are not perfect as God is. They are imperfect. We also need to understand this. Anytime you attack the Word of God, you know what you're really doing? You're really attacking the deity of Christ. If you attack the Word of God, if you say, well, I don't believe Revelation, or I don't believe Genesis, don't believe creation came about in that way, or I don't believe Jonah and the whale, surely that couldn't be a true story. You need to understand something. Jesus quoted those passages. Now, so here's the deal with that. If Jesus quoted those passages, and if Jesus, in fact, is deity, if he's God in the flesh, that means Jesus is quoting what he knew to be true, and if Jesus is quoting what he knew not to be true, and it was not true, that means that he's not God. A friend of mine years ago had the chance to go to Southeastern Seminary before there was a lot of changes down there, and there's a big liberal element there at that particular time. And he had the chance to go down, and they had a panel to where they were debating whether or not the Word of God was true, and they brought in some pastors and some lay people across the state to debate some of the professors that were there. My friend came back, and he said, I realized after a few moments they didn't have a problem with Scripture. They had a problem with the deity of Jesus because they're wanting to tear down what Jesus said is true. And if you do that, it is an outright attack against Jesus being God in the flesh. That's why we need to come to the approach that the Bible is true. Some people argue you can't believe the Bible because we don't have all the original copies. And yet some of the same people believe things like, uh, like Homer's uh, writings, uh, you know, other writings from antiquity, Plato, and things like that when they're less than 10 copies of theirs. You don't know how many total documents they have to support the New Testament, over 14,000. And when... Scholars who look at that and decipher it and put it together from all the evidence that we have, all the past copies that we do have of the Bible, they come up with the conclusion that just based upon the content that they have, it's 99% correct. But here's the deal with that. You had the character of God there, and it's always 100% correct. You had who Jesus is, God in the flesh, and it's always 100% correct. Another question that people tend to ask a lot that we need to kind of deal with today, I guess. Why so many translations? See, we're talking about whether or not you can trust your Bible. So why in the world do we have so many translations of the Bible? 
Well, here's a little bit of a history lesson about that. Uh, originally, when you had you know, churches that were called like the Western churches going toward Europe, their Bibles, the copies of the Bibles they had, the translations that they had were in Latin. And as you went you know, toward the East in, in, the, in the Middle East, the, the language that they had their Bibles written in, it was written in Greek. So in other words, you had to be pretty exclusive and be able to read Latin or be able to read Greek and understand it to even read the Word of God. That, that's why they're translations of Scripture. I, I want to give you a news flash for this area especially. Here's a news flash for this area. And I'm going to qualify what I say in just a moment. Here's a news flash for this area. The 1611 King James Bible was not the first Bible that was ever written, and it's not the only English Bible that somebody ought to read. Now, I'd get in trouble saying that in this area. I got in trouble in my last church saying it one time. Because I said something about uh, a very poor translation of, of something the new, that, uh, the, in the New Testament when it says God will never leave you and forsake you. When you read it in the Greek, it says God will never, no, never, no, never, ever ever leave you and forsake you. So just saying God will never leave you and forsake you to me just don't get it when it really tells me time over and over again. It repeats itself, making it clear God will never forsake me. But I got in trouble with a deacon because I said something about the, the 1611 King James Bible. I'm not against the 1611 King James Bible. I'm not trying to say it's wrong. I've preached out of it for years and years and years. When I quote Scripture, a lot of times it still comes out of my mouth as, you know, King James. But here's something you need to understand. The King James that anyone has today, I don't care you know, whether it's this church or some other church. I've got King James Bibles in my office. This, it is not the 1611 version. It's been revised 40-some times. Because we don't spell like that anymore in Elizabethan English. We don't speak like that anymore in Elizabethan English. That's why it's revised. So for someone to act like the 1611 is the Bible that they read, no, they don't. They don't even have a copy of the 1611. I've got a copy of it if you want to see it sometime that I bought when you know, the Bible company brought out a copy of it. You'd struggle trying to read it you know, just because of the languages and everything that's written. So, so why then so many translations is simply this. People need to be able to understand their Bible. One of the things that happened out of the Reformation was they were wanting to get the Word of God into the hands of the people. There's even a painting of Martin Luther where he's off in like a dungeon and he has this Bible with a chain attached to it that he stole off an altar so he could take it home with him and read it by himself and light is coming in through the window and it's illuminating this verse that just shall live by faith. See, what they wanted to do in that day and time was keep all the Bibles locked up at the church and you had to accept what someone like me would tell you. What a priest would tell you instead of being able to read the Word of God. John MacArthur, in, in, uh, or John MacArthur, <laughs> Martin Luther, and John Wycliffe. John MacArthur, by the way, is a good theologian. Too. Maybe that's why it came out of my mouth. But Martin Luther and, uh, and John Wycliffe, at great risk of their own lives, translated the Scriptures into German and English respectfully. 
A guy by the name of William Tyndale was charged with heresy and condemned to death for translating the scripture in English. They tie him to a post. The executioner choked him to death, and then they burn his body. Why? Because he wanted people to be able to read the Bible. That's why. You read yours lately? Somebody died, a lot of people died just so you could have the Bible. Have you read your Bible lately? Some have this argument about translations. Well, we don't really need all those translations because this is a spiritually written book and it has to be spiritually interpreted to our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God. I agree with that. It, does, it is spiritually written, and it does have to be spiritually interpreted. But if you take that line of thinking to the extreme, what you're really saying is this. We never even need an English version to start with. Give somebody a Hebrew Bible, give them a Greek Bible, and say, all right, the Holy Spirit will help you understand it. That's that illustration taken to the extreme. Why translate it to some tribe's language in Africa? Just take them to King James and say, here. God wants you to understand it, you'll understand it. You see the erroneous thinking to go along with the idea that there does not need to be many translations. The translations are there simply so we can understand what's being said. Illustration of that. In the King James, it talks about husbands being won by the conversation of their, by their wives. What do we think of conversation meaning today? Right? Talk. A lot of husbands will think, I hear that enough. That's not going to get me saved. In that day and time, conversation about the manner of their lifestyle. So newer translations let us know that. We have multiple translations so we can better understand the Word of God. Now, having said that, I want to go over some things about translations. Because there are differences in translations that you need to be aware of. First of all, look, look at these. For in-depth Bible study, I recommend using a word-for-word translation. A word-for-word translation means that the translators, as the best that they could, try to translate from the original word-for-word. Some examples of that are the King James, also the New American Standard, the, the New King James, and something I've introduced you to today, maybe without you even knowing it, and that's the English Standard Bible. I did it intentionally today. I use a completely new version that I've never used before for your benefit, for you to see what it's like. And I really like it, and a lot of Bible scholars feel like that and the New American Standard are probably the closest word-for-word translations. So if you're going to have a Bible for in-depth Bible study, don't grab a paraphrase version for your in-depth. Don't develop your theology from that. Get get a word-for-word translation. Other translations are thought-for-thought translations. In other words, the thought, you, you'll not get your doctrine messed up by it. The thoughts are there, the thoughts that God was communicating, but it's not a word-for-word translation. And, and examples of that, the NIV, the New Living Translation, Contemporary English Version, and some others. Paraphrase translations, on the other hand, can be good for devotional reading, like the Living Bible, the Message, and the Amplified Bible, but you don't want to use those for in-depth Bible study because they will not teach you all that God's, I think, wanting to teach you if you're really going to try and study the Bible in a clear way. You need to be aware that there are corrupt translations also. There are corrupt translations like the one that Jehovah's Witnesses have brought out, the New World Translation. In large part, it was written to do away with hell and to do away with the deity of Christ. Their book, the, the Book of Mormon, 
you know, we'll do away with the deity. Do you realize that, that the New World Translation from the Jehovah Witnesses and also writings from the Mormons, do you realize that they make Jesus and Satan to be brothers? See, here's the deal with that. If Jesus and Satan are brothers, you have either just deified Satan, who is not God, he's a created being, or you have took or taken away the deity of Christ, one of the two. And yet that's what their translations say. Another question is this, is the Bible sufficient for all you need for life with God? And the answer to that is absolutely yes, and here's why. Look at something Jesus said. Remember the story about the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man died and he went to hell and he's begging Abraham to send somebody to go talk to his brothers so they won't come to the place that he's in. Jesus is telling this story and here's what Jesus said. But Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they've got all they need. I don't need to send someone from the dead to tell them. They've got all they need. They have Moses and the prophets. They just need to believe what's been written. And then he said back, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. If you pull that all down, Jesus more or less just said this. What Moses said and the prophets said is all they need to read to find out about me. I don't need to send somebody from the dead to tell somebody. If they'll hear the scriptures, that's all you need and the scriptures contain for us today all we need to have the life that God wants us to have with him number five we're about to run out of time I'm going to hit these quickly number five how can I best study and interpret the Bible that's another important question that you may have about the Bible how can you best study and interpret the Bible I'm going to give you an illustration to begin with and then tell you some ways to do it here's an illustration I'm going to talk to you about trying to get a good grip on your Bible to get a good grip on your Bible Think of the five fingers as these five things that I'm talking about. Hearing the Word of God. I mean, it's good to hear the Word of God, but what kind, what kind of grip can you get with one finger? See that? Not a very good grip. I, you know, I, I, a kid could come up here and take it away. Dave wouldn't have to be the one to do it. A kid could do it, okay? Reading. Hearing and reading the Bible. Spending time reading the Bible for yourself. And you get... Two fingers on him, that's a little bit of a better grip, a little bit of a stronger grip. Third, studying the Bible, not just reading it haphazardly, but taking time to study the concepts, the principles that are there, comparing Scripture to Scripture. Three fingers gives you a better grip, memorizing the Bible. Because you may not always have the Bible with you when you're confronted with a situation. That's why we need to have God's Word in our heart that we might not sin against Him. Number five, meditating upon what the Bible has to say. All of a sudden, I've got all five of my fingers on this Bible, and it'd be a lot harder for someone to rip it away from me. So how should you study the Bible or interpret the Bible? Look at these suggestions I'm going to give you. First of all, just do it, okay? Do it. Take time to read the Bible and study the Bible regularly. Here's my recommendation. Start with the New Testament. I even recommend starting with the Gospel of John first because it comes with a promise that you can know Jesus, that you can know God. So start there. 
had a friend of mine in Bible college that grew up way down in the sticks of Kentucky and everything, and he started getting interested in God, never been to church or anything else, and started reading the Old Testament first, and he was about to go out and sacrifice a lamb somewhere. So, start with the New Testament first, do it. Secondly, compare it. You know what the best commentary, you've probably heard somebody else say this or me say, but what's the best commentary on the Bible? The Bible. <laughs> Not what somebody else said about it, but the Bible. So compare what the Bible has to say against the Bible. Next is this. Ask it. As you are reading the Bible, ask yourself these questions as you study the Bible. And let's cover these questions real quickly. What does the Bible actually say? Not what you think it says, not coming with a predetermined mindset what it says, but read it closely again and again. Be sure you understand what is actually being said. Number two, what kind of literature are these scriptures? Because the way you interpret the Bible might be differently if you're reading poetry or prophecy than it would be if you're reading a historical narrative account. So pay attention to what type of writing that it is. Number three, what do these scriptures mean in their original context? You better read the original context and see what it means. Not you go turn over and read where Judas went out and hung himself and think you're supposed to do it. Read the context that's there. What was God saying immediately to the people in that day and time? Fourth, ask yourself this question. What timeless truths are communicated in these scriptures? In other words, it might have been written in context to someone in that day and time, but it has a timeless truth that's still applicable today and ought to be applied to your life. And the last real important question is this, how should I respond to what God has said? How should I respond to what God has said? You see, here's the deal. We don't come to the Bible just for information. We come to the Bible for transformation because God wants to transform our lives with the Word of God. Which comes to the last thing about how to interpret how to study the Bible. Next slide is this. Apply it. Be sure that you apply what God says to your life. What good is reading it if you're not going to use it? What good is knowing it if you're not going to take time to apply it to your life? It is God's guidebook for your life. It is guidebook for salvation. It is a guidebook to eternity. And that's why you need to read it and apply it. Don't just read it like information. Read it asking God to transform your life, to change who you are as you read the Word of God and apply it to your life. I'm going to close by saying this. <clears throat> One last question. <laughs> Who's the hero of the Bible? You see, I hope you get a little bit excited about this part because I understand. I've given you a lot of information. That's what this series is about. I, and I told you up front that's what it's about. And I kind of fussed at you a little bit last week. Don't come to church. Maybe that's why we're down today in the first service. Maybe it didn't have anything to do with the time change. Maybe you said I fussed at people and said don't come to church just to be entertained. So maybe all this stuff just feel like you've been in a, you know, in, in seminary class or something. I don't know. But we're going to close talking about who's the hero of the Bible. And the answer is Jesus Christ. It's his story. History is his story. See, it's all about Jesus. From the front to the end, it's all about Jesus. And if we don't have Jesus central to the Bible, then we'll get really messed up in how we approach the Word of God. 
To be honest with you, we don't have the message of Jesus in Jesus Central as we read the Bible. Old Testament and New. See, some people make a mistake of saying, well, I like the New Testament better than the Old because the New Testament is about Jesus. No, the whole Bible's about Jesus. All of it's about Jesus. And if we don't read the Bible with Jesus there, looking for Jesus, here's what's going to happen to us. We're going to become a bunch of moralizers that try and legally obey things in the Bible legalistically, and we'll be trying to work our way to heaven, which is impossible if you read the Bible without Jesus. You get way messed up in your theology, in your approach to God, in your approach to heaven. Jesus met those disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. And the Bible says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets in Luke 24, 27, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus to his disciples said this. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Where did Jesus read? In the Old Testament. It's all the Bible he had at that point in time. And it was about him. See, we need to read the Bible constantly And as we look at the concepts and the precepts and all the things that's said in this Bible, here's what you need to be looking for. As you read the events, the prophecies, the types, whatever, here's what you need to be looking for. You need to be looking for Jesus because Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Which leads me to close with saying this. Look at these items. Jesus has seen an Adam as the second Adam. Jesus is seen in the priesthood in the Bible, in the Old Testament, as our high priest. Jesus is seen in King David and in other kings in the Bible, typified and pictured as our king. Jesus is pictured in the prophets as our prophet. Jesus is seen as the angel of the Lord to be the pre-incarnate son of God when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Jesus is seen in the sacrifice in the lambs as our perfect once and for all sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our Passover lamb. It's his blood that needs to be applied to our lives. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is our bridegroom. He's our bread. He's our water. Jesus is our shepherd. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. He's the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. Jesus is the eternal king of of glory. So my question to you as we close today is simply this. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? Because He wants you to. God sent this so you can know Him. God's revelation to man. God, this Bible that I hold in my hand, it does not contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And that concept ought to blow you away, and it ought to change maybe the way you approach reading your Bible and not take it home and stick it on a shelf and forget about it until next Sunday. Think about that. The very 
holy God, creator of all the universe, the self-existent, eternal being, sent this to you because he wants you to know him. Wow. So do you know him? Are you reading it? Are you studying it? Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, to you right now, and just thank you, God, that you, Lord, that you desired for us to know you. God, that you revealed yourself to us, that you have sent us your word in written form, in human words that we can read and know you. We thank you, God, that your Bible tells us how holy you are. We thank you, God, that your Bible points out to us that we're sinners that we're in need of your grace, we're in need of your mercy. We thank you, God, that your Bible is about Jesus and how he came and he went to the cross and he shed his blood that through faith in him we can have everlasting life. God, we thank you and we just praise you this morning for your word. The Father, right now as we come to a time of decision at the end of this service, if there's someone here that does not know you, God, help them to understand right now that you want them to know you. You sent this Bible so they can know you. Help them to realize how much you love them. Help them to see themselves as sinners who cannot save themselves by good works. God, guard us that we don't read the Bible like a bunch of moralizers thinking we can earn our way to heaven. So, Father, if there's someone here that needs Christ today, Help them to trust in this Jesus that's the hero of the Bible, that's the hero of all history. Lord, for those of us that know you, God, speak to us this morning, convict if necessary of our approach to the Bible, of our time in the Bible. God, call us to be to be people of your book, to be people of your word. God, renew our commitments today to daily be seeking after you and your truth by reading your word and applying it to our lives. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. The band does a song. If you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior and you feel God drawing you, I invite you to come this morning. If you're here, someone that already knows Him and you recognize you've been ignoring this, Oh, it'd be a great time today to say, I'm sorry, God. I'm not going to ignore it anymore. This is your word. You really, it's your word you sent to me. So band plays and God speaks to your heart. We invite you to come. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Dayton Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.